Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 as we continue our study of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is our passage today. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And that passage can be found on page 857 if you are using a church Bible. Page 857. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, and would you please join me in prayer before we look at the text. Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and, and now as we worship you in the hearing of your word, uh, God, would you please speak to us by the Holy Spirit? Would you show us your goodness, uh, your kindness, your love, uh, your power? Would you show us your glory and show us the, the beauty of Jesus Christ? Would you show us ourselves as well, God, in a true light that, that we could respond to your word and draw near to you and, and turn away from any kind of sin that would be a detriment to our relationship with you? Uh, we pray as well for those here who may not know you. Would you please show your amazing grace today and save? Even this morning, would you bring conviction? We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. In the opening chapter of the book of Luke, Luke has been concerned with the birth of two children. One of these children will be born to a barren, elderly, childless couple that in the very womb where life had not been possible, God would provide life. It's a miracle that two senior citizens could somehow conceive and become the parents of John the Baptist. The other of these children would be born to a virgin a young woman who had never been with a man at all, that by the Holy Spirit somehow she might become pregnant. No seed. That is a greater miracle, the conception of Jesus Christ. And so we have the great and the greater. One of these children, the angel Gabriel declares, will be great before God, filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb, and prepare a people for the Lord. And John the Baptist would do just that. The other of these children, the same angel Gabriel declares, will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. He is to be the long-awaited eternal king. And so again, we have great and the greater. Luke has been intertwining these two children's announcements and their birth accounts to show us just that. And John the Baptist has been born, and his mute dad, Zechariah, his mouth has finally been opened, and the very first thing that comes out of that is praise to God. We saw that last weekend. And the watching community was so taken aback at how abnormal the whole situation was that they were left wondering. They were laying it up in their hearts, these things. The entire hill country of Judea is asking the same question, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. There's, there's a great anticipation and a deep understanding that the birth of John means great things for the people of God. There's a kind of glory to his birth and expectancy. And in our text this morning, we finally come to the birth of the second and greater child and the anticipation of it and the expectation is such that one might think that his birth would outshine the former's. Great and greater. But it does not. 
The birth of Jesus Christ is told in the simplest of ways. And it is humility rather than glory that, that Luke wants us to think about when we read this very brief account. Look at verse 1 with me. In those days, <clears throat> a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was a first generation when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. Notice in these verses that the Son of God and God himself, the eternal King, Jesus Christ, will be born under the decree and the authority of a human power, Caesar. Caesar's the one calling the shots. This isn't Israel's high point. This is her low point. The second and greater miracle child is under the rule and the reign of another. In the first century, the Roman Empire was a superpower. And so when Luke says a decree went out that all the world should be registered, pretty much Rome ruled all of the ancient world. Rome here is at its seemingly ever-growing peak, which means that Israel, the people who acknowledge Yahweh and worship God and God's very own people, they are under foreign domination, and this has been the case for quite some time. They have to obey Caesar. When Caesar says be registered, you have to be registered. When you know that you are registering so that you can be taxed more and give your money up to the pagan nation that has dominion over you, well, you go get registered exactly how they tell you to, and you pay them exactly what they tell you to pay. This is not a high point for Israel. Now, Israel used to be a superpower maybe about 1,000 years prior. King David, King Solomon. The kingdom was united. Their borders were furthered. The people enjoyed the defeat of all their enemies on all sides and a growing peace as a result. The economy, booming. Technological advancements everywhere. They were way ahead of their time. And this kingdom of Israel was so envied that other people from other nations would travel long distances just to hear King Solomon open his mouth and say something because they heard of his reputation for wisdom. They wanted to see how King Solomon governed his kingdom. And they would make that trek all the way into Israel. And when they finally got there, they wouldn't be disappointed because the hype was real and then some. Israel used to be a superpower, but again, that was about a 1,000 years earlier, and here we are. Israel has been divided and conquered. Exile is a more recent memory than any kind of kingdom, and now we're just one state among several states, many states under the power of Rome. We don't have a king. We don't have a throne. We don't have a military. We have nothing, and we are nobodies as far as power is concerned. We are so dominated that when Rome says jump, we have to answer how high? How high would you like us to do that? It's as if we exist to build the empire of Rome more than the empire of God, because those who worship God right now are at the bottom, and those who are the pagan idolaters are at the tippity top. One might think that the Messiah should have come at the peak of Israel's heyday and not in her deepest valley, that perhaps after the Goliath slaying King David and the wise and genius King Solomon, that the next in line for the throne would ascend again and outside the former kings and be the Messiah. That the promised son of David with a kingdom that would last forever 
that you should be born in a palace at Israel's peak so that he could take her to the next frontier. But right away, Luke is unfolding to us what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And we know, and the church knows today, what these first century Jewish people did not quite understand, that the Christ, the Messiah, the great deliverer is not coming to help those who can help themselves. He did not come for the upper echelon of people, the upper crust, so to speak, the cream of the crop. No, he comes to rescue those who have hit rock bottom and who know that we really have nothing to offer to God but a set of empty and dirty hands. And this greater miracle child is coming at the opportune time so that all who read of his simple birth in the midst of a decree from Caesar Augustus, ruler of the ancient world, he rules over so much that he has to have governors and a lot of middle management. This greater miracle child is coming at the opportune time so that all who read of his simple birth would understand a little bit more about his humble character and who it is that he has come to save that even the parents of the eternal king have to go back to Joseph's little hometown to obey Rome and shell out their dollars. There's nothing in these opening verses describing the birth of Jesus Christ, the greater child, that cries out glory. In fact, it is quite the opposite. We find a little poor family making a long trek to a town to be counted so that they can pay off a pagan superpower some taxes. There's nothing glorious about these verses at all. Now, before we move on, I want to make a quick note. We're also seeing in these opening verses of Luke chapter 2 that the birth of Jesus Christ is rooted in actual and real human history. The reason why Luke can name Caesar Augustus and talk about a decree and mention Quirinius as governor of Syria is because of the true historicity of the person of Jesus Christ. This does not make believe what we believe. Christianity is not built on mythology. The person and work of Jesus Christ is not a tall tale. John Piper, he says, it happened in a real city, not Narnia, not in Middle Earth, not in a galaxy far, far away. This account is a matter of historical fact, not fairy tale. And brothers and sisters, the more far removed we are from these events, sometimes it is that the more that these events feel like legend rather than history and stories rather than eyewitness accounts. But the historicity of the birth of Jesus Christ is rooted in reality. Remember Arnold Godo, who went home to be with the Lord last year, former elder, executive pastor. He would sometimes say in our staff meetings, let's not call the Bible a book filled with stories. We're not reading Bible stories to the kids. This is history, actual history, and, and maybe we should change that vernacular a little bit, even when we do read the Bible to our little children, that these are not bedtime stories, but actual living history. Remember, the very opening verses of Luke, he's writing this account to a man named Theophilus. He's writing this account to readers like us so that we might have certainty concerning the things we have been taught and rooting Jesus' birth in actual history builds our certainty more, up more and more and more. And so God, the Son of God himself, is going to be born under the decree and the power of a pagan human superpower in the first century. And it seems that Caesar is the one in control. 
And Caesar is the big dog, and he is the one calling all the shots. But we continue in verse 4 to get a bigger picture of what is reality. It says there, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While Jesus is going to be born under the dominion of Caesar, Luke here is pulling the curtain back a little bit so that we could see the greater authority behind the scenes and a more sovereign superpower than Caesar himself because there is a more foundational decree than that of a Roman ruler, and that is the decree of a sovereign God. While Luke doesn't quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, like Matthew does in his account, hundreds of years prior to this event, the prophet declared there, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. God had made a promise that one who is from of old, from ancient of days, will be the forever king, and this person is going to be born in Bethlehem. God made this promise centuries before this text. And here we are, Mary's pregnant, Joseph is her fiancé. He stayed with her, even though the pregnancy had nothing to do with him. And they lived in Nazareth, Galilee, and yet to fulfill God's very own word, God decrees Caesar's decree that at the opportune time, Joseph would have to listen to the Roman rulers and make the trek to Bethlehem, and it just so happens to be the final trimester of Mary's pregnancy. Luke is pulling back the curtain so that we can see the greater authority and the more sovereign superpower than that of Caesar, which is the Lord himself who can use even a Caesar like a pawn within his own hand. That even when Israel is not at her peak, but in the depths of her deep valley, that doesn't mean that God is forgotten, and it doesn't mean that God is not in control. While Caesar Augustus is fueling his own pride and filling his own army, and deepening Rome's own pockets to make his kingdom and his rule seem all the more powerful, God's sovereign providence is raising up a different and more powerful king using Caesar himself. And if we think about it more and more, the realm of God's sovereign decree is really quite amazing. That even prior to this, that the man Mary would be engaged to would have as his very hometown, Bethlehem, the city of David. Not Jerusalem, the city of David, but Bethlehem, the podunk town David was born in. That this Messiah would be both legally from the line and lineage of King David himself and also born in the same hometown as well. I mean, everything is lining up perfectly exactly how it's supposed to line up, which shows to us who is the real king and who it is that is actually just a mere puppet. Listen to J.C. Ryle on his commentary on this passage. He says this, The overruling providence of God appears in this simple fact. He orders all things in heaven and earth. He turns the hearts of kings wherever he will. He overruled the time when Augustus decreed the taxing. He directed the enforcement of the decree in such a way that Mary must needs be at Bethlehem when the time for the baby came to be born. Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think 
that they were only instruments in the hand of God and were only carrying out the eternal purposes of the king of kings. Little did they think that they were helping to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which the empires of this world would all go down one day and Roman idolatry pass away. And so we see that while Jesus is born under the power of a pagan ruler, Caesar Augustus, at a time when Israel is not at her peak, but in a deep valley of powerlessness, God is still in control. And God is orchestrating his own supreme decree to fulfill his very word and carry out his very purposes. That even those who are adamantly against Yahweh, quite beyond their own intentions, are actually serving Yahweh's intentions. Now let's bring that principle down to the ground level. We often, in our lives, have no idea what it is that's going on. We make plans that do not turn out. Our hopes and our aspirations are not always achieved. We're on a series of constant detours of how we would have written the roadmap for our own lives. And we may sometimes find ourselves asking the question while looking into the mirror, why is this all happening to me? I can't make any sense of it at all. I just don't understand. And then we can open up the Word of God and look at a pregnant Mary in our text, be thinking what she's thinking. Why is this happening? I'm engaged, I kept myself pure and chaste, and now I'm pregnant. The angel Gabriel, he did say, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That was chapter 1, verse 28 of Luke. But I don't know that it feels like I am a favored one, nor does it feel like the Lord is actually with me. My relationship with Joseph is different. My relationship with the people of my hometown is different, as if anyone would ever believe that I got pregnant in any other way than the conventional way. And now I'm as big as a house. And Joseph and I have to travel for miles and miles to go back to Bethlehem because, surprise, surprise, we still have to bend the knee to Rome. And Mary's about to find out when she gets there that she's going to give birth in a place she never dreamed she'd be giving birth. She's about to lay her child down in a manger that animals eat out of. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with me. And yet we know what Mary didn't know at the time, don't we? That Mary, what she couldn't see then, she is celebrating even more now. That somehow God would use her little life to bring to earth the Savior of the world. And God was accomplishing by his own sovereign decree and in an act of his overruling providence, the very thing that he had determined to do since before the foundation of the world, which is to bring a sinful people to be his very own. And brothers and sisters, while this prophecy being fulfilled is very unique to Mary, the promise that God is ever with you is not unique to Mary. I remember hearing Sinclair Ferguson several years ago talking about the children's books where all the pages are filled with dots and the numbers. And you start at the one, then you connect it to the two. And once you connect the dots, a picture comes out. Our sons would start at the one, then connect the line to the two. As an adult parent, we can already see what the picture is. That one's going to be a dog. That one's going to be a horse. But they don't know that. They're just connecting the dots. And for my oldest son, Braden, halfway through the drawing, he would always be like, I don't get this. And just want to draw his own picture. Because <laughs> he couldn't figure out what it was supposed to be. I don't, I don't get it. 
just keep going. But this is nothing. Just keep going. Just keep connecting. And sure enough, dot to dot, the final picture would eventually come into focus. At church family, sometimes we just got to keep going. Just keep going from dot to dot. You don't see it yet. Like Joseph in the book of Genesis didn't see it when he got sold into slavery. Just don't see it yet. Like Mary couldn't see it right here in our verses. Or Peter couldn't see it when Jesus got arrested and crucified. Or Judas couldn't see it when he counted money as more valuable than Jesus. But God's perfect will and a sovereign decree will be accomplished. And in a thousand years from now, we wouldn't have it in any other way. Do you believe that? Well, then you just got to keep going and take comfort that God is really in control. And his will and his decree is ultimately good. And so Luke, again, is showing to us a few things at the same time, the humble beginnings and yet the royal roots of Jesus Christ. He's showing to us the decree of Caesar, and yet over that the decree of God, who can make even a Roman empire a pawn in his own hand to accomplish what he has determined to accomplish to save us. Verse 6, we continue. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I hope that our familiarity with this scene does not take away from how astounding this scene actually is. The child Jesus is born in a place no baby should be born in and laid in a feeding trough that no parent dreams of using as a bassinet. There's no physical comfort for Mary here. And the Lord of glory enters into a life of poverty, of rejection, of no place for me, of weakness, that even from day one, the Son of God did not get a break. Matthew Henry on Jesus being wrapped in swaddling cloth, says, the ancient of days became an infant a span long. But hasn't this always been the plan, Isaiah 53? He would be like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The very bookends of the Son of God's life are the manger and the cross. Those are the bookends. And the in-between is such that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head while even the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But in Jesus' humiliation, there is a built-in invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me. Charles Spurgeon, he says, we might tremble to approach a throne, but we cannot fear to approach a manger. The very picture that Luke paints for us in this very simple and short account of the birth of Jesus Christ is a window into the very heart of our God, which is filled with amazing grace and loving, infinite condescension, that the inapproachable God, holy, 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 
he can be approached. That the eternal king, who when he says jump, we should be saying, how high do you want us to do that? And yet he issues a command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor even as you love yourself. And the world is proof that no one obeys this set of commands. And our own lives are proof that we have not obeyed the King of Kings in the way that he deserves to be obeyed. And the result is not that the eternal king is born to conquer us right away, but that the eternal king might first be rejected and scorned and be a root out of dry ground, laid in a manger, denied by people, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because, Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The simple and humiliating birth of the Son of God is God being with us, us who wanted no part of being with him. Let me read to you what Ligon Duncan says about the greatness of God's love in the gospel. He says, we have rebelled against him. We have chosen a piece of fruit over him. We have preferred to worship ourselves and our own dreams and our ambitions rather than him. And in order to rescue us, the very people who have rejected him, he prepares his son to be born, not in glory, but in humility, not in a palace of gold and silver, but in a feeding trough of unclean animals, not clothed in silk and beautiful baby garments, but wrapped in claws that have been stripped and wrapped around him to keep him warm in the manner of a peasant. In other words, in this passage, we are seeing God humbling himself in the humbling of his son for our sakes. It's a glorious picture of what God does for us in the gospel. Whatever it takes, he does. Whatever it costs, he pays. Wherever he has to go, he goes. Whatever he has to bear, he bears. The Savior, you see, from the very moment of his birth, begins to personally experience the humiliation that we experience because of our sin, but which he does not experience because of his sin, because he has no sin. He accepts this experience of humiliation because he is living for us in our place. So every calamity that his people experience because of sin, he experiences. And every disappointment that his people experience because of sin, he experiences. And every rejection that his people experience, he experiences. You can never say, no one understands me. Jesus Christ completely understands you. He accepts our deserved consequences for sin and lives in humiliation all of his life so that he can then crown that humiliating life with a humiliating death because of the greatness of God's love for people who do not give a hoot about him. That's the gospel, and we see it displayed here. Brothers and sisters, look at how much God loves you. If you ever doubt God's love for you, because sometimes you can't connect dot one to dot two or dot three to dot four because 
it doesn't make sense when you don't see what the whole picture is supposed to be. When you feel the temptation to doubt God's love for you, look at the manger and look at the cross and look at everything in between and know that God loves you. If you're not a believer this morning, look at God's offer of love towards you. That even if you've lived the entirety of your life utterly indifferent to God, utterly, who cares about what he wants, just give me mine. That God, and even in this birth, is offering you his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have life and life eternal, that you can really come to know him, and that you can really be forgiven, and that you can really be given a new life where you live for something so much greater than living just for yourself, which is what we are designed to do and to be, to experience the joy of God-centered worship. The invitation in the manger and in the cross is to turn away from your sinful life and your self-centered pride and come to Jesus Christ. Please do that. And so we have the Lord of all, the Son of God, born and laid in a manger under the decree of Caesar Augustus, which is really all under the decree of a God who humbles himself to rescue his very enemies because of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your long-suffering, your patience, your mercy, your love, your sovereign power. Lord, would you captivate us more and more by who you are? Give us eyes to see more and more who you are revealed in your word, that we might understand just how much you love us. And would you make that love so transforming in our hearts, in our lives, that whatever we say, whatever we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, it might all be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.